does God expect of us after we become a Christian? Can we do what we want? Or does being a believer have obligations? And what about when we mess up? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. These questions and more are what we'll answer in our lesson today from the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, bad choices, consequences, and God's grace. More than simply Bible history, the books that we've been looking at in the Old Testament are helpful lessons for our journey through life. Pastor Ray Stedman said this about the book of Numbers, If you read the Old Testament as nothing but a history of ancient events concerning people who've long since disappeared, it will be the dullest, most boring reading you can find. However, if you read it as a picture of what is happening in your life, vividly displayed in terms of these people of old, you will find fascinating reading indeed. 1 Corinthians 10 has a similar idea when it tells us that these stories were recorded for us so that we don't make the same mistakes. Bible commentators through the years have likened the stories from Exodus and as the people traveled to the Promised Land as a picture of the Christian life from our salvation to Christian maturity. And with that in mind, as we go through the passages, I'm going to frequently share application as we see what the children of Israel did so we'll know how to live a life that's pleasing to God. Now in the setting of Numbers, it's been a year and a month since the children of Israel left Egypt and a lot has happened during that time. I'm going to give you a review first and as I do that, an early application for all of us is periodically take time to remember all God has done for you up to this point in your life. Think about the extraordinary gift of salvation. We sometimes, especially a lot of us that became a Christian, maybe when we were little kids, we forget how really incredible that is that we're going to spend eternity with Jesus. We don't have to worry about hell or judgment. Think about how he's given that to you, how he's allowed you to grow up with the knowledge of his word and the people in your life that have helped you. Take time to record some of those things and thank him for them. Now back to the children of Israel. First of all, they experienced the Exodus, and this was really one of the most extraordinary events of biblical and human history. People who were slaves for over 400 years were freed from the control of one of the most powerful nations on earth. After God's demonstrations of his power in all of the different plagues, the ones of flies and frogs and locusts and turning the Nile red with blood, I mean, just all kinds of things that God did, and finally in the death of the firstborn of Egypt. That was followed by a further deliverance from Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. The Exodus is often used as a picture of our salvation where we were rescued from a life as a slave to sin and now we're alive to God. They then travel until they arrive at Mount Sinai, and this is where they will receive God's laws. And the picture of this to us is the reminder that once we're delivered from sin, once we become a Christian, once we become part of God's family, we need to know how God wants us to live. 
God also reminds them of the covenant, of the agreement that he made, the agreement between God and his people. Now the covenant that he gives to them is a continuation of the one that he gave to Abraham when God called him out of Ur the Chaldees and promised to give him the land and that through his people all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now here is how the giving of the covenant is recorded in Exodus 19, 1-8, where it says, On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now, note how in this, now remember this, because this is really important for what follows. God gave them the conditions of obedience, the conditions of the covenant, what they were supposed to do, and they promised to obey. Now, God continues with even more promises. He promises that he will send his angel to lead them. He promises that he will wipe out their enemies, that will he will hand over the land to them. He promises that he will send a terror ahead of them to frighten the people that are currently in the land. And once again, in fact, twice, the people respond with, Everything the Lord says, we will do! This is the pattern of covenants during those times. The powerful ruler or the one in charge makes promises the people promise to obey. A covenant was a serious and binding agreement, and there were very serious consequences if it was broken. Now, the application here is we're often quick to accept God's promises, but we easily forget our obligations. What we also forget is there are consequences if we don't do what we promised to do. Now, this doesn't mean, let me just jump ahead and say that that we lose our salvation or that God doesn't love us anymore or any of those things. No, God's love promises his salvation. That's all constant. But just like a good parent doesn't let a child get away with living and doing whatever they want, God treats us in the same way. So the people still don't really know exactly how God wants them to live, and Moses goes up on the mountain for more instructions. Now, unfortunately, the people get impatient. Maybe they think that Moses could have been up there, you know, half a day, and then God could have told him all he needed or or whatever. We don't know exactly what it is, but they think Moses is taking too long. The application note here, and this is this is really, really important. Some of the greatest sins that we see in the Bible, and I'll talk about them as we go through them, and in our own lives, is when we get impatient for God to act. 
we'll see again and again that that happens. And we do well to get used to the idea that God always takes longer than we want. <laughs> you can just count on it. Almost never does something happen and people go, oh, wow, God answered that prayer faster than I thought, or that blessing came sooner, or oh, I was successful at this or that a lot quicker than I thought. It just usually doesn't happen that way. And for some reason, part of the test for us, part of God's system for growing us in our Christian lives is that we often have to wait. Now, unfortunately for the children of Israel, in while they weren't waiting and while they were impatient, they decided to construct a golden calf and worship it and have this massive party around it. And that did not go well. <laughs> Moses comes down. He's very angry. He breaks the tablets of the law. He grinds the golden calf into a powder and he makes the people drink it. And 3,000 die. Now God is merciful though. And after this whole situation is over, the covenant is repeated after their sin with the golden calf. And the Lord said to them, I'm making a covenant with you. I will do wonderful things in front of all your people. I will do amazing things that have never been done in any nation in the whole world. The people you live among will see the things that I, the Lord, will do for you. And they will see how wonderful those things really are. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites to make room for you. Be careful. Do not make a peace treaty with those who live in the land where you are going. They will be a trap to you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down the poles they used to worship the female god named Asherah. Do not worship any other god. Now, the application here and the thing to remember, God told them specifically what he would do and what they were supposed to do. And he has told us in the Bible again and again what he will do and what he wants us to do. And as you read his word, that's when you'll discover more and more how he wants you to live your life. God does not hide these things from us. He doesn't keep secrets, but we need to read his word to learn how he wants us to live. Then in Leviticus, God instructs them on how an unholy people can approach a holy God. One of the most important things about the law, and I know it's hard to read through and there's things that we go, oh, that's kind of icky and we don't understand this or that, but it shows us how God cares tremendously about every little detail of our lives. Many of the social laws no longer apply to us. Jesus said, even during his life, he said, you don't have to worry about this or that. He, it says he declared all foods clean. And there were, there were a lot of other things that Jesus fulfilled and that we don't need to follow anymore. But the overall idea is that everything we do matters to God. In Romans 12:1, it uses the picture of these Old Testament sacrifices when it tells us to present our bodies. That's all we are and all we have as living sacrifices to God. 
And also in 1 Corinthians 10.31 it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And that's what all of these detailed laws in Leviticus were training the people to do. Now after receiving God's law, how did the people respond? You would think they'd be grateful, they'd be thankful, they'd say, God, thank you so much, you're showing us how to live, but no. <laughs> Unfortunately, in Numbers, it says, now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. That was definitely a bad choice. And then the consequence, because it made God very angry. When he, God, heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah, because of the fire from the Lord had burned among them. God hates complaining. He takes it very personally because it is blatant evidence of not trusting him, and the punishment to them was severe. Now, did that change then how they reacted as their next trial came up? Mm, nope. <laughs> Sadly, and I shouldn't laugh. It's just, you know, I guess I laugh because they're so like we are. You know, we know we shouldn't do certain things. We do them. We suffer the consequences. Then we turn right back around and do them again. But hopefully, when we see it happening with another group of people, with the children of Israel, maybe it will cause us to pause a little bit more and really try to live our lives in a way that God wants. The complaints, unfortunately, with them continues, and so did the consequences. It goes on to say the rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic, but now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. So God sent them quail. But it says, well, it says they, they had so much that it was coming out of their nostrils. They ate it until they were just stuffed. But they were also struck with a severe plague, and many died. Psalm 106 recounts this episode in a very interesting way, where it says, But they soon forgot what he had done, and did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert they gave in to their cravings, in the wilderness they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. Other translations, and as I looked it up in the Hebrew, actually this is much more correct. It says he sent leanness to their soul. Hear that again. It said he gave them what they asked for, but he sent leanness to their soul. The consequences of leanness to the soul, sin shrinks our souls. It turns us into ourselves. We just become self-absorbed. Sin makes us into little people, people with little compassion or conscience. So what is the remedy for that? We don't want to be that. We don't want a shrunken, shriveled soul. There's a wonderful promise in Psalm 23, 2 and 3. In the New American Standard Version, it puts it this way, where our good shepherd lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. 
The application, of course, is God doesn't want us to wallow in sin. He doesn't want our soul to be thin and shriveled and shrunken. He wants to restore us. We simply need to name our sins, ask for His forgiveness, and He will restore our soul. Now, a note about the manna. I was thinking about this a while back, and I thought, well, if why in the world did God give them such a boring diet for 40 years? I mean, if he could send a manna, couldn't have he sent other food as well? I mean, like strawberries on Thursday and maybe uh, apple pie on Friday. Or I, I'm being kind of silly here. But, you know, I mean, he was God. He made it all. Couldn't have he sent a little bit different stuff? Well, then I realized they weren't supposed to eat manna for 40 years. This was supposed to be temporary food, temporary provision. They were promised a land flowing with milk and honey, a rich, productive land where the grapes were so huge that when the spies went to the land, they had to carry a bunch of them back on a pole. That's what God planned for them. But unfortunately, because of what I'm going to be described in a minute, and them wanting to do it their way and not listen to God, they had manna to eat for 40 years because that's basically what they chose to eat. They didn't follow God's plan. Now here we are at the border of the land. The 12 spies are sent in to check it out. When they returned, their reports started out like this. We went to the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And they showed this all this wonderful fruit, all these great blessings, all this fantastic stuff. If only they continued based on the repeated promise of God. Remember, he told them specifically, I'm going to send fear ahead of you so that the people will be afraid of you. And they found out when they got to Jericho 40 years later, that's exactly what happened. Um, he said he was giving them the land. He said he would conquer it. They would have, if they would have listened, all they wanted to eat. They would have a land of their own. They would have rest from their trials in the desert. But that didn't happen. Despite Caleb and Joshua reminding the people what God would do, it says that we, it says that uh, the other spies said, we can't attack those people. They're way stronger than we are. They spread scary rumors among the people of Israel. They said, we scouted out the land from one end to the other. It's a land that swallows people whole. Everybody we saw was huge. Why, we even saw the Nephilim giants, the Anak giants that come from the Nephilim. Alongside them, we felt like grasshoppers, and they looked down on us as if we were grasshoppers. Well, they were grasshoppers. They were little, but they forgot they had a big God. There are times of grumbling, of not trusting God, of complaining about everything, caught up with them at this. And God had had enough. God threatened to destroy them on the spot. Moses intervened and begged for their forgiveness. And the Lord replied, I've forgiven them as you ask. How long, though, will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness your bodies will fall. Every one of you, twenty years old or more, who is counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you 
will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun, the two spies who gave the good report. God goes on, for 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. (sighs) There's many applications to consider here. Little sins that really aren't so little, like grumbling, can set a pattern in our lives that is difficult to break and can have big, unexpected consequences. You see, the first test that they have, that they had to encounter was not when they went into the land. It was all the little tests along the way. And they built up a pattern of not trusting God. At their core, remember, Any kind of complaining, grumbling, or whining expresses a lack of trust in God. The children of Israel were promised certain things, and God told them again and again that he would take them into the land and conquer their enemies. He did not promise them gourmet meals along the way, or that they'd like all the leadership decisions their God-appointed leaders made, or that they would have steak every night. He didn't promise them any of those kind of things, but he promised he would take them into the land. He promised he would conquer their enemies, and they didn't believe him. Now, a question right here as we're looking at how this applies to our own lives. This is very important. What do you do if you feel like God promised you something and you didn't get it? Now, we we can say, well, that's fine because they would have gotten that promise, but but God promised me thus and so. I didn't get it, and so I'm not going to trust him again. You might feel like you can't trust God, but this is, this is really important. Be very sure of any promise that you claim. A problem with many today is they think God promises them a carefree, trouble-free life when he never, ever promised that. For you to think that, it's a result of incorrect teaching and people pulling verses out of context and trying to make Make it so that God says something that he never said. Please listen to my other teaching on how to avoid disappointment with God. I've got the podcast and a video and notes and you know all sorts of things on that. But I really encourage you to listen to that because it's so important that we are clear on what God promises and if the promise is conditional or not. But what can we do then when times are difficult? We can always cry out to God in pain and want and hurt. And this isn't the same as complaining. There's a big difference. And you know what that difference is. You know the difference between I hurt God and God, why'd you do this? You know, one is, and you know, when you see it in another person, you know, when you see it in a child, when a child is just being naughty and mean and not trusting, or when a child is genuinely hurt and says, Mama, I don't understand. A parent 
always wants to comfort and love and explain at those times. Read the Psalms if you're confused about this because many of them, David cries out to God, but he always reconciles with God. He has pain, he has questions, but in the end he always trusts God. Job was the same way. He said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Many of the prophets express great pain and hurt and confusion to God. One more example that maybe not as many people are familiar with is the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, His prophecy took place when the Assyrian army had been defeated and Israel had been taken into captivity. The southern kingdom, Judah, was still sovereign, was still a nation, but the Babylonians were on the rise and they were wicked and they were cruel and Habakkuk just didn't understand how God could have used this one really cruel group to punish this other one and were they going to conquer his land? He just didn't know and he pours out his prayers and his cries to God and God never condemns him or punishes or berates him for asking. He gives him answers and basically in a very similar way to the way God did it with Job He doesn't give him specific answers, but he comforts him and shows him his character. And Habakkuk responds by ending the book in this way. He says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, which basically translated to our day-to-day means Everything collapses, total financial and every other kind of collapse possible. He goes on to say, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to tread on the heights. Not only can a little sin or a bad spiritual habit grow into a major transgression, but it can have major consequences, as shown in the story of Israel in Numbers. After God pronounced judgment on them, they said they were sorry, and they tried to go into the land on their own, but it failed. The sad truth is that though God always forgives, and again, they didn't lose their ultimate salvation, He forgives when we ask for it, but at the same time, God does not always remove the consequences of sin. Sometimes just saying, I'm sorry, doesn't work. And sometimes that can do very destructive things in our relationships with other people also. Sometimes there are no do-overs. And sometimes, sadly, people don't learn from their mistakes. Because they kept making bad decisions and continued to suffer the consequences. Once again, In Numbers 20, the people didn't have water to drink. Now, you would think that by this time, they would say, you know, God has given us water and food and so much every step of the way. Let's see how he's going to act now. But that didn't happen. In Exodus 23, it says, They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community to this wilderness, that we and our livestock should just die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Once again, God is gracious 
He tells Moses and Aaron to gather the people and speak to the rock, and water will flow out. They gather the people, but Moses is angry. And he says, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? He takes his staff and he strikes the rock. God continues to be merciful, and he gives the people water. But Moses had dishonored and disobeyed him. The consequences of that bad decision to react in anger are that God punished Moses by not allowing him to enter the promised land. It seems incredibly harsh. But here are some applications for us from it. Because again, remember in 1 Corinthians, it says that these things are written so we should learn. So let's pay attention. And some of the hard lessons here is we are never too old or too mature in our Christian lives to commit serious sins. This can happen to us at any step in our pilgrimage. And we are never in a position where there won't be consequences. Some people think they can do or get away with things because of their position they're in. That they can do evil simply because they can. That they can exploit people or lie to people or cheat or whatever. But that is simply not true. They may think they get away with something for a time, but no one ultimately gets away with sin or with hurting others. Some essential applications here. And I've thought about this a lot. Because as I get older and get older, I think a lot about aging well, I hope. And I want to be the kind of really old person who people look at as a godly person. I don't want to be someone, someone mentioned to me just the other day, someone that we both knew, that who as they got older, just got meaner and meaner. And that was really sad. And then I remember my mom, who, um, she knew the Lord, of course. And as she got older and more and more frail and fragile and couldn't walk and had to be taken care of, she just got sweeter and sweeter and kinder and more gentle. And that was a real joy to see. And so I, my application from this, it's very personal, but I think it serves us well to root out character flaws as early as we can. I don't know how old you are listening. Maybe you're very young. Maybe you're older. Maybe you are getting close to meeting the Lord, but at whatever time you are in your life, work on that so that as we age, or if we're in a situation where we simply react, something happens suddenly or unexpectedly or whatever, that we don't automatically react based on previous patterns if they've been negative ones. As I look at Moses, and again, this is not to judge him, but hopefully to learn from him, it seemed like he didn't do that. Uh, It seemed like he had a bit of an anger issue. He killed a man in anger when he was young. He thought he was doing what God, God's will as he decided it. But um, he definitely, definitely had an anger issue. And some of his actions as he got older, though they might have been what we might call righteous anger, they were certainly actions of anger. And I, you know, uh, I'm not sure they were quite necessary. Um, for example, making Israel drink the water with the powdered remains of the golden calf. I, you know, I don't know. But that does seem like a bit of a temper tantrum to me. Um, it seems that anger was a continuing issue for him. And now that he's older and he's tired, and as we get older, we get tired, and he's fed up 
with people complaining. And so he reacts from this well of anger. And the results are very grave consequences in that he's not allowed to go into the land. C.S. Lewis, a, a C.S. Lewis quote applies here that I think is, is quite, that I've found very helpful, where it says, If there are rats in the cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. We must certainly work on killing the rats in the cellars of our heart, such as reacting with anger, feeling God owes us, resentments, whatever, so that our actions and words, when we're under stress and not in control, will flow from a pure heart that is at peace and trusts in God. And one of the things, too, that I, I say oftentimes to myself, if I just react in a way that I don't want to, I go, oh, there are the rats in the cellar. Got to work on killing a few more of them. We build that up, though, day by day, bit by bit. Again, another quote from C.S. Lewis that I think is it's been very helpful to me, where he says, Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you make and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. And apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. The example of Israel in Numbers is a dreary one, making bad decisions of what probably seem to be many little sins of grumbling, complaining, and they allowed it to grow into the rebellion of not trusting God to take them into the promised land. This little sin, these little sins, full-grown, led to the consequence of wandering in the desert for 40 years until they died. Remember their example, but also the advice of Lewis, and with the little actions of your life, grow in godliness and your trust in God, so that when the big tests come, you'll respond in ways for your good and God's glory. And the end of their story isn't punishment, but an example of God's grace. Because in spite of all their doubting, grumbling, and sin, in spite of the consequences and just punishment for what they did, God remained faithful to His covenant. They had food and water during the entire time. Their clothes and their shoes did not wear out during 40 years of wandering. Even more wonderful, though they continuously broke faith with him, God kept his promise to bring their descendants into the promised land. Now in our next lesson, you're going to hear the four, we're going to be in Deuteronomy, and you're going to hear the four final sermons from Moses as they're ready to cross over into the land. One last application to us. Again, another quote from C.S. Lewis. This is a real encouragement. No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. 
We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home, but the bathrooms are all ready, the towels put out, and the clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. No matter how we stumble on our journey from salvation to the promised land, no matter how many bad choices we make and the consequences we suffer, we will be welcomed home. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prin, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.